This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, Tom Hartman, Jim Hightower, comedian Lee Camp, The Progressive, Rachel Maddow, The Onion Radio News, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, The Bugle, and The Young Turks, with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Occupy Movie. I haven't been able to touch much on, obviously, uh, the general strike, because uh, we had a pre-record yesterday. But uh, I thought it was amazing. I thought uh, in shutting down the port, i got to give one of these to the longshoremen. I love it. And uh, to the people in Oakland, uh, sadly, things turned violent that night, uh, not as a function of Occupy Oakland. And I don't think necessarily a function of the uh, cops. I'm not quite sure what happened. I do know that to the extent that there was any vandalism or, um, and it was, you know, look, in, in Oakland it was, you know, it's somewhat predictable that you're going to get, particularly on the West Coast, uh, a lot of those... Um, Black Block, in this instance, it was the Oakland Liberation Front. That was, uh, you know, the day before the general strike was putting around pamphlets saying, don't be pacifist, be violent. Uh, there's a certain inevitability that that's going to happen with a protest of this size and a general strike. But, frankly, I think when the Oakland police introduced tear gas into the mix a couple of weeks ago, they opened up the door to this. Of course, when you start to take those tactics, you're escalating. And while the uh, Oakland, uh, the Occupy Oakland General Assembly denounced it beforehand, any attempts to violence, while you had uh, General Assembly people guarding windows of banks, to keep um, people uh, from this uh, Oakland Liberation Front from breaking them. There's only so much they're going to be able to do. And when you escalate this stuff, you're inviting escalation. It's the same reason why I'm against uh, capital punishment by the government. Because when you introduce the concept that this type of violence is legitimate, in circumstances that you can justify, you're opening the door to people to justify violence when they can justify it. So when the cops throw tear gas into a crowd of people trying to help another person who is clearly unconscious on the ground, they are sending the message This is war. Violence is acceptable in rather uh, speciously justified moments. And um, so it's quite clear that during the day when Occupy Oakland was in charge of this thing, 
was able to uh, <clears throat> was able to control it. There was nothing that happened. Although the only thing that happened was, and you could see the video of this now. It's quite clear what happened. Guy driving a Mercedes through the uh, protest march. Two protesters stood in front of the car. We're harassing the guy. I mean, not, not directly, but they were standing in front of the hood of the car. The guy starts inching forward. One guy bangs on the hood of the car. And then the driver proceeds to slam on the gas and run over two people. And the police apparently interviewed him and let him just walk away, the driver. You can see the video. Was he antagonized? Yes. Show me where in the law it says that if someone antagonizes you in front of your car, and there's clearly no threat to this guy, because the people were in front of the car. <laughs> so he's not operating in self-defense. I suppose you could argue he's operating in self-defense of the hood of his car. But as far as I know, that is no legal defense to using your car as a weapon. And it's clear he did it on purpose. Two people had to be hospitalized, a man and a woman, because the guy just rammed through a crowd of people. No attempt to turn. It's quite obvious. You can see the video online. It's pretty stunning. It's pretty stunning they let this guy go, frankly. You can go your own way. Robert Greenwald on the line. We are partnering with Robert in this new project, the, our, our program, uh, among others. And so Robert will be joining us often for updates on who are the 1%. Robert, welcome to the program. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. And it's great to be partnering with you and all of your incredible listeners and activists and viewers. Thank you. And, I, and let me just put the, a couple of URLs out here. You, first of all, you are the producer, director, political activist, and founder and president of Brave New Films, BraveNewFoundation.org. But this is we, uh, or excuse me, who are, as A R E, who are the 1%.com is the website for this particular action. That, that, that we're collaborating or that you're working on and I'm trying to support. And tell us, who are the 1% and what are you doing with this? Well, what we, we all, of course, Tom, and you've been talking about it in a wonderful fashion. We've all been inspired and encouraged by the Occupy folks. So a lot of the time that we at the Brave New Foundation, we try to think about how can we be helpful, what's not being done. 
And we realize that what is not being done in place to our skill set is to identify who actually are the 1%, who are those people with more wealth and more power and are using that wealth and power to keep down the other 99%. Because it's not just about money, it's how you use the money and what you're doing with it. And we felt that it was a helpful and also important way so that people can begin to understand what are that 1% doing, how do they make their money and wealth, we're going to have a continued voting about what is the dirtiest deed that they've done, and ultimately identify the dirty dozen, if you will. For now, we've been having a great outpouring already this morning with people making suggestions and explaining. Is it the Waltons, or is it the Cokes, or is it the, the head of the Bank of America? The, you know, the names are flying in, and sadly... There's a very, as you can imagine, long list to choose from. Right, and then the defense contractors. You've done a piece on that, too. Um, yes, exactly. Thank you. The, uh, the defense contractors who pretend, and maybe this is among the most disgusting and outrageous, pretending that it's about jobs, and really what it's about is men, primarily men, making you know, 20, 30, 35 million dollars a year in salary and stock bonuses, um, because that's what their focus is at these at these large war profiteering companies. Right, which they makes, are way up there. Right, which makes them the top one one hundredth of one percent. <laughs> I know it's really it, mind boggling. It, 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 you know, it really is. And I've been reading up on this, Tom, and you know, and you know this, of course. But there was a while ago when war profiteering it was a question eisenhower said and there were house and senate investigations should anybody be allowed to profit from the war well not only has that gone we're now rewarding these profiteers and we hope and we believe in the one percent campaign uh, we will call them out yeah and and you, you in fact here's what franklin roosevelt had to say about this our present emergency He's talking and about World a common War II. sense of decency Make it imperative that no new group of war millionaires shall come into being in this nation as a result of the struggles abroad. The American people will not relish the idea of any American citizen growing rich and fat in an emergency of blood and slaughter and human suffering. Now, Robert... When 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 FDR said that in in 1940, I think it was 41 or 42, um, and Harry Truman actually started a commission as a senator to uh, to uh, look into you know who was profiting off the war. There was a broad American consensus that yes, we don't want war millionaires. Now these guys they live in lavish mansions. They're considered the height of society. Uh, they're they're you know the, the people bow and scrape as they walk into restaurants. I mean, what has happened in America? How how have we how have we turned into a nation that worships the one percent? When we used to be a nation that looked at the one percent as the leeches on the back of body of the body politic in society. Well, I think we want to bring a campaign now, Tom, just based on what you said, bring the leeches back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or stop the leeches. Actually, stop I'm, the I'm viewing leeches. them as, yeah. yeah. Uh. Stop the leeches. Um, well, I think that we've been propagandized, pure and simple. The 1% have spent an enormous amount of time, energy, and money and convincing us in a multitude of ways that they are indeed have our self-interest, uh, which, of course, they don't. 
And right. again, the war profiteers being just an obvious, outrageous example, as they're as people and men and women are being sent off to die, and people in all kinds of countries are dying. These people are profiting at obscene levels and are trying to convince us the only thing they care about uh, is more security. We saw it with, with the bankers. We see it with Wall Street. And they are using the media. They are using their position in society. And they're playing on people's uh, some level of envy to try to convince us that these are the, uh, these are the idols. But that's I think what we all have such a wonderful reason to thank the Occupy folks for helping change the conversation and putting a spotlight on these folks. And that's what we're trying to do with the help of you and your partnership on the Who Are The 1%. So people really start to think, wait a minute, who are they? How are they screwing me? What are they doing with their money? And this is how the system works. Right. Whoarethe1percent.com is the website. We're talking with Robert Greenwald, the producer, director, political activist. Robert, um, I'm old enough to remember. I probably shouldn't admit this on the radio, but I'm old enough to remember when Jimmy Carter was inaugurated and he walked to the White House for his inauguration. And it was a very low-key event and, and uh, you know, wealth was not celebrated and throughout his presidency not only was wealth not celebrated but thrift and frugality were promoted you know turn down your thermostat wear sweaters things like that reagan came into office and took the limousine to his to his uh, uh, you know uh, swear his inauguration balls um, I remember the headlines in, in the newspaper, wherever I was living at the time, saying words to the effect of glitz, glamour, wealth are back in fashion with the Reagan administration. And, you know, within a year or two, we had movies, you know, like Wall Street saying greed is good. And you had the, you know, Reagan suspending the Sherman Antitrust Act. So the mergers and acquisition mania began dropping the top tax rate from 74 percent down to 28 percent of millionaires and billionaires. And it seems like that was the turning point in America when we stopped viewing the rich as leeches and started viewing them as kings. And it seems like there's a turning back now with the whoarethe1percent.com with the work that you're doing. But would you, would you identify that timeline, or do you, do you see something different the minute we have left here? No, I, I agree with you. I think that was the timeline. And it's also a strong argument, Tom, about the way that narratives work. You know, it wasn't that the law was passed saying the rich are kings. It was that the narrative became to accept them that way. And that's one of the reasons that the Occupy people on the ground and the social media is so important. You know, I'm using my Twitter account like crazy to help get these ideas out. And, of course, Facebook has been incredible for Occupy. We're also using it for who are the 1%. And, you know, and I know you've been using them actively because it's on the ground and online. And the two together, I think, give us the ability to begin to fight back on the kings and the lords and the 1%. From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few
Here's a surprise that the power elites really hate. Many members of the 1% are joining the We Are the 99% protest movement. I don't mean that hedge fund billionaires are suddenly in the streets to show solidarity with millions of Americans who are fed up with the systemic inequality and corruption infesting our economic and political systems. No, no, those swells aren't about to dirty their Gucci's with any street action. Rather, I'm talking about another extra special 1% of our society, the soldiers who've been the boots on the ground in Washington's misguided and bloody wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Rather than marching in Veterans Day parades this year, thousands of vets from America's abused war class have been rallying with the Occupy movement. They're expressing their anger at being used in two senseless wars that enriched corporate contractors while the troops who are lucky enough to make it home alive can't find decent jobs and are shorted on the health and education programs they desperately need. In New York, more than a hundred of our nation's soldiers proceeded in uniform from the Vietnam Vets Plaza to Wall Street, where they stood in formation in front of the stock exchange. Corporate profits on the rise, they chanted. Soldiers have to bleed and die. The powers that be, far from offering the salutes that vets deserve, much less offering the help they've earned, deployed a line of New York police to block these peaceful protesters from the financial manipulators inside and another line of police on horseback wielding nightsticks to threaten them. This is Jim Hightower saying, this was a disgraceful show of force against those who have fought our wars. The police should be looking inside the financial empires, not threatening protesters, but their action exposes just how perverted and corrupt the power elites have become and why all of us should support this burgeoning democracy movement. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian. There, now do I have your attention? It's just a fact that certain types of topics are sexy and attractive and grab people's attention and focus and won't let go, like silly celebrities or devastating hurricanes, fiery crashes that involve a, a clown car colliding into an ice cream stand and a petroleum truck exploding into a rainbow of tragic yet colorful pieces. Those make for sexy news stories. Those are sensational and easy to talk about. The scams and criminals that have nearly destroyed our society, on the other hand, 
more complicated. They can't be relayed in fucking sound bites. Subprime mortgages and derivatives, credit default swaps, and the Federal Reserve don't have the requisite tanned tits or building collapses or celebrity relapses to get talked about on a regular basis by average Americans. Not only do they not get reported on, those topics aren't even discussed by the presidential candidates. How extensively has Rick Perry talked about fractional reserve banking? He's talked about it only slightly less than he's discussed his upcoming plans for Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of lights. The men and women sitting at the table of the financial markets around the world and extracting all the wealth, wreaking havoc on average people, rely on the fact that we won't want to talk about complicated issues when we're getting our hair cut or standing at a urinal trough with seven other men. We'll talk about, you know, weather and sports, and maybe if we want to raise the level of conversation, we'll shift to how the nachos seem to be giving us gas. But that's where it ends. They know that we won't sit through a news story on credit D default swaps, but we will sit through one on an ostrich that escaped from the zoo and is causing mayhem at a nearby elementary school. We'll sit through hours of that reporting. Chubby kids can't outrun an ostrich. What will they do? They rely on the fact that we won't riot to stop the grandest theft in a thousand years, but we will instead riot over things like the, 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 the dismissal of a football coach who's been protecting a child rapist. And we all know the media long ago gave up on their responsibility to report the news. They report whatever the highest number of people will sit and watch. And that's why Occupy Wall Street scares the shit out of them. It's changing the conversation in this country. More people know what corporate personhood and Citizens United are than ever before. Income inequality and corporate greed are dinner table topics now. And we didn't even have to blow up a truck full of clowns to do it. I mean, we, we, we did blow up a truck full of full of clowns, but it was, it was purely for sport. getting more and more concerned about the excessive force that police departments are using against nonviolent participants in the Occupy movement. We all know about the Iraq war vet Scott Olson, who got his skull fractured in Oakland after police shot a tear gas canister that hit his head. They also shot another tear gas canister into the crowd of people who went to help him, by the way. Then in Berkeley last week, police used their batons to jab and poke totally peaceful protesters. Police even forced a professor down on the ground and handcuffed and arrested her. And on Sunday in Chapel Hill, more than 25 officers, some brandishing semi-automatic rifles, stormed a building the protesters were occupying. They made people get on the ground and pointed guns right at their heads. They arrested eight people and handcuffed a reporter from the News and Observer. In Portland, police also dressed in full riot gear and made 50 arrests. Protesters reportedly chanted, take off your riot gear, as well they should have, because what we're witnessing here is the increasing militarization of our police forces, which have gotten all sorts of fancy equipment and new toys in the post-9-11 era, and they seem itching 
to try them out, even against nonviolent protesters. This has got to stop before it gets any uglier. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. At the University of California's campus at Berkeley, uh, which everybody calls Cal, um, outside the administration building there, there's a big empty plaza space. Um, and at the top of a sort of a short run of stairs from the administration area down to that plaza, there was a plaque that's embedded in the steps. Uh, and it names those steps the Mario Savio steps. Uh, this is Mario Savio. Um, you're about to hear Mario Savio in a moment. I'll just tell you for context, the President Kerr that you hear him mention, uh, President Kerr was president of the University of California at the time that Mario Savio was speaking here. The context here is that the students were trying to overturn a ban on political activity on campus. They wanted uh, free speech rights to advocate for political causes on campus, and they're protesting here against the university president and the university's board of regents. Check this out. We were told the following... If President Kerr actually tried to get something more liberal out of the regions in his telephone conversations, why didn't he make some public statement to that effect? And the answer we received from a well-meaning liberal was the following. He said, would you ever imagine the manager of a firm making a statement publicly in opposition to his board of directors? That's the answer. I ask you to consider. If this is a firm, and if the Board of Regents are the Board of Directors, and if President Kerr, in fact, is the manager, then I tell you something, the faculty are a bunch of employees, and we're the raw materials. But we're a bunch of raw materials that don't mean to be have any process upon us, don't mean to be made into any product, don't mean, don't mean to end up being bought by some clients of the university, be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. <laughs> Or human beings. It was Mario Savio. His big speech that day at Cal in 1964 culminated uh, with this famous rallying cry to the students who had assembled there. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. That was December 1964. Uh, and from that very famous speech, there's a little bit of video from that speech, which you've just seen there. There are some still images, and there is some audio of Mario Savio's entire speech. The record of this event, in terms of the media available to us now, uh, it's sort of patchworky. That doesn't mean that you have to break anything. 1,000 people sitting down someplace, not letting anybody buy, not letting any... Anything happen can stop any machine, including this machine, and it will stop. Mario Savio, 
part of him there talking about putting your body on the gears of the machine. Uh, you have heard that before, right? That, that became one of the iconic rhetorical moments of the whole decade of the 1960s. And there weren't very many of those moments from 1964 on the West Coast. But it was, it, it was like he was talking about how to stop the Vietnam War. It was like he was talking about how to stop segregation. It was like he was talking about big national issues. And allegorically, maybe he was talking about those bigger issues. But in the moment, what he was talking about, as you heard there, was free speech, was students' rights, students' rights to be protesting at the University of California. This was a huge confrontation between the students and the university, between the students and the police. And it was over a very local campus free speech issue. And even though the free speech movement faced huge hostility at the time, there were more than 800 arrests, the largest number of arrests of students in U.S. history up until that point. Thirty years later, the school put up a plaque for Mario Savio. They named the steps where he spoke there to honor the most articulate and powerful of the free speech movement student organizers at that spot. And at that spot... This month, at that plaza where Cal put up the plaque to mark the success of the free speech movement, here's what happened on Wednesday. Riot police breaking up an Occupy Wall Street demonstration at Cal's supposed free speech plaza last week on Wednesday. Here's the thing, though. Since that massive police show force on November 9th, the protesters there uh, are back. Today they organized a day of action at Cal that included classes being taught outside and a march from Cal's Sproul Plaza, the home of Mario Savio Steps, uh, to the local public high school, Berkeley High, uh, and to Berkeley City College. Cal's annual Mario Savio Memorial Lecture was already scheduled to be taking place tonight. It was scheduled to be held this year in some ballroom on campus, but thanks to a request from the Occupy Cal protesters, the Mario Savio Lecture tonight will be held outdoors. It will be held outdoors where that plaque is at Sproul Plaza, where those cops beat up those protesting students just last week. At this hour, the student protesters are reportedly planning to erect tents on the grass near where the lecture is to be given. Because of that, they say they expect a confrontation with police. They expect to be removed from the Free Speech Memorial Plaza again, maybe in the middle of the Mario Savio Free Speech Memorial Lecture. Mario Savio's widow put out a statement yesterday saying that the, the lecture was going to be moved outside, quote, in protest against the use of excessive police force against nonviolent demonstrators. She said, we apologize for your inconvenience, but as Mario said, there comes a time. Today in New York City, uh, very, very early this morning, really in the middle of the night, New York City police raided and tore down and cleared out the Occupy Wall Street encampment uh, that has been at Zuccotti Park in lower Manhattan for nearly two months. The raid happened at 1 a.m., roughly, uh, as most of the protesters there were asleep. New York City police officers dressed in riot gear handed out a written notice to the protesters telling them where their personal articles from the encampment could be retrieved. Uh, which sounds lovely until you saw what they were doing to the protesters' personal belongings. There were reports that police used knives to cut up the sturdy military-grade tents that were the best hope of surviving winter down there. You can see police here cutting down the protesters' tent poles uh, with handheld saws, with sawzalls. 
This was a massive police action. There were 200 arrests early this morning. Zuccotti Park was totally cleared. But here's the thing. Like at Cal, like everywhere so far for the past couple of months, the protesters are already back. After taking temporary refuge last night in nearby Foley Square, in the immediate aftermath of the police raid, at daybreak, people came back to Zuccotti Park and said that no matter what happened, whatever specific spot they were going to be boxed out of for the time being, they were not going away. They were not leaving. On a practical level, what happens now? What's day one? What's day two? I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to put my tent right back up. We show them that we are not just words on an internet screen. We are people. And we are, we are willing to put ourselves in pain and misery to put our point across. How important is the occupation to Occupy Wall Street? I think it's very important. This is, this is the location, this is the scene of the crime, and we need a, a critical mass of people. When, when people get together and they talk face to face and they have a library and people are coming down to talk and organize, and it's, 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 it's what's needed. You can't do everything on the internet. Those interviews are both shot by our producer, Laura Conaway, who was down there this morning talking with protesters uh, and also just talking with the passers-by. If they can't be here, what do you think happens to their movement? Oh, I don't know. I, I think it might get, wouldn't you guess it's strong enough that they'll, that it's gained so much momentum that they'll keep it going somehow? It does seem like they are strong enough, at least so far, to keep it going somehow. Uh, that same point about the fact that this is not going away was made eloquently and pretty effectively, I think, by Dan Siegel on this program last night. Dan Siegel uh, is the advisor to Oakland Mayor Gene Kwan, who resigned in protest over that city once again, clearing out their Occupy encampment. Dan Siegel was our guest on the interview last night. To me, it seems like a totally useless and futile activity to spend millions of dollars to take people out of tents to create situations where there was bloodshed in our streets and lots of chaos for days uh, because they're going to come back. Uh, this is a movement that can't be stopped. They're going to come back. Although he did not put it uh, in these specific terms, Dan Siegel was essentially recommending last night uh, that cities consider taking the approach that Washington, D.C. has taken as a city thus far, uh, which is to not try to clear the encampments out of there, to do what you need to do to protect public safety, but to also recognize that this movement is important, to try to figure out a way to let them stay. Practically speaking, though, um, and this is just practical advice to every mayor in the country, to every police force in the country, the whole point of this protest is that it doesn't go away. That's the tactical point. It's not called March on Wall Street. It's not called Rally at Wall Street. It's called Occupy Wall Street. It's not a stand up for the 99% on Saturday at noon movement. It's a we are the 99% movement. And its tactics are about physical presence, about continued physical presence. And so beating the heck out of people and knocking down their signs and arresting them and tearing down their stuff and cutting it up with sawzalls and running them out of a public space for a day, that makes this movement stronger. And it's always been this way. You kind of should have figured it out by now. I mean, the reason Mario Savio gave his bodies on the gears speech that became so iconic, the reason he gave that speech in December 1964 is because in October 1964, police moved in to try to arrest people for handing out civil rights pamphlets on the Berkeley campus. And those arrests led to this. Look, you see what's in the center of that? It's not a stage. A kid who the police were trying to arrest for handing out civil rights pamphlets is in that police car, which is what's in the middle there. 
The police car is what Mario Savio is standing on. That's hundreds, no thousands of other people surrounding the police car, not letting the police take that kid away to be arrested. That kid was in that car for nearly two days. Had he not been arrested, he would have just been a kid on Sprawl Plaza giving out civil rights pamphlets. But because you arrested him, those became, 30 years later, the Mario Savio steps. That plaza became home to Berkeley's free speech monument. It became not just some one kid's free speech effort. It became the free speech movement, which, by the way, became a major part of why we got a massive nationwide anti-war movement in this country. And so in Oakland on October 25th, 2011, they beat the heck out of people. They fractured the skull of an Iraq war veteran. They doused all of downtown Oakland in tear gas. They set off concussion grenades. And they cleared that plaza that day, and that encampment came back at that plaza bigger than ever. Now they've cleared it again, as of two nights ago. How did Occupy Oakland respond? They came back. They came back to the original square they occupied there, and also to a nearby one, where they planned to stick it out for even longer. In New York City, they cleared out Zuccotti Park in the early hours of this morning with no warning while people slept. Tonight, Occupy Wall Street is back, back to Zuccotti Park. In Boston, remember the footage we showed you a few weeks ago, the Occupy Boston encampment being cleared out? They're back. They are back, too. And they're filing legal action today, the ACLU and the National Lawyers Guild, trying to secure them a place to stay for the long run. In Portland, Oregon this weekend, there was a huge show of force against the Occupy Portland encampment. Occupy Portland has responded by calling for a citywide day of action on Sunday. They're claiming more support than they have ever had in the past. At Cal Berkeley, after being beaten by police and cleared out of their protest site, Occupy Cal was back with a full day of protest activities today. And they are back tonight at the birthplace of Berkeley's free speech movement to hear, outdoors tonight, the Mario Savio Memorial Lecture. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Do you see the breeze are blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you smell the scent of roses or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come? When we rectify what's wrong Putting all where it belongs As we stand up and be strong Cause it's time to make a difference In this fickle world of change Here's some free advice for America's financial and political leaders who are eager to shut down the Occupy Wall Street protests. If you want to woo the public, try to keep your riot-clad police from shooting an Iraqi war veteran in the face and brutally beating another with clubs, especially when the unprovoked assaults are being videoed, as recently happened in Oakland. You're welcome. The increasing presence of war veterans in the Occupy protests makes it difficult for officialdom to claim that the movement is nothing but aimless, shiftless kids who pose a threat to decent society. Indeed, the real threat to decent society, by which the elite mean themselves and their plutocratic rule over our economy and politics, is their own disdainful treatment of America's workaday majority. 
Like millions of knock-down middle-classers and held-down poor people, a tidal wave of soldiers who've served three, five, seven, or more tours in hellish war zones have been coming home to a jobless, low-wage, relentlessly grim economy. The unemployment rate for vets is 12%, a third higher than the national rate. For young vets, it's 20%, more than double the national figure. And some 50,000 more soldiers are to return from the Mideast wars by year's end. So, what's the plan? After World War II, a more enlightened establishment created the GI Bill to absorb that surge of returning soldiers. But our leaders today have nothing approaching that enlightenment, nor even a plan to have a plan. This is Jim Hightower saying the penthouse swells can unleash their police to break up protests, but that only fuels the fury. Now, they're cracking down on veterans, people who know how to use guns. It's time to deal with the growing crisis of joblessness and inequality in America. For more information, contact veteransforcommonsense.org. Workers protest the overventilation of U.S. factories. It's the Onion Radio News brought to you by Yuan May Incorporated, a leader in bioliquid technology. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Workers across the nation are marching in protest today against the scourge of fresh air forced on them by overly ambitious government officials. While many sympathetic factory owners have dutifully complied with the law, they stand in agreement with their employees that too much ventilation is bad for everyone. Factory owner Doug Lemberth. It costs us a lot of money to install these dangerous fans and filters, but... We did it. Experts warn that millions of workers could live long enough to be forced into retirement if the government's plan for universal ventilation becomes law. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help.
shell, my little one. We're at a which side are you on moment right now as far as the Occupy Wall Street movement goes. We see which side Bloomberg's on. New York City's mayor busted up the encampment at Zuccotti Park with tear gas and pepper spray, even though a judge had ordered him to keep it open. On the flip side, Dan Siegel, the legal advisor to the mayor of Oakland, staked out the high moral ground by resigning in protest over his boss's decision to raid the occupiers again. Siegel told Rachel Maddow that he believes the Occupy movement has the potential to really remake American society for the better. It seems like a totally useless and futile activity, he added, to spend millions of dollars to take people out of tents, to create situations where there's bloodshed in our streets and lots of chaos for days because they're going to come back. Siegel's right, of course. As more cities try to squash the Occupy movement, there'll be more confrontations ahead, I'm afraid. Right-wing forces are urging an even heavier-handed crackdown, and that's just what we don't need. What we need is more people like Dan Siegel to step up and defend the Occupy movement as we try to remake America. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. For the entirety of the life of our nation, democracy has been protected, not merely by the strenuous efforts of those of us who cherish it, but mostly and most profoundly by the limitless stupidity of those who would ration it, keep it for themselves and themselves alone, or destroy it. The protests that ended the war in Vietnam reached critical mass only in 1970, when Governor James Rhodes of Ohio pounded on a desk at a news conference and called the student protesters at Kent State University un-American. They were not un-American, they were unarmed, and the next day four of them were shot and killed by the National Guard. And ten days later, two more were killed at Jackson State. Those protests had themselves only gone mainstream 20 months earlier, when Mayor Richard Daley of Chicago overreacted with mindlessness and sadism to the massing of demonstrators outside the 1968 Democratic Convention, and the whole world watched. A century of the institutionalized, codified, legalized, pseudo-slavery that had followed the real thing was fatally stricken only when Governor George Wallace of Alabama used his inaugural address to promise segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Within two years came the marches on Selma and the atrocities at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And ten weeks after the first violence, the president had proposed the Voting Rights Act to Congress. The mounting paranoia of three decades of the scapegoating of and fear-mongering about liberals only ended when its last white night self-destructed on the national stage of televised hearings, when Joe McCarthy questioned the loyalty of the U.S. military and, towards one junior attorney, he revealed the depths of his cruelty and megalomania, and he revealed that at long last he indeed had no shame. Pick any moment in our history. Our history is a country founded by and invigorated by and reinvigorated by protest. And you will find men like George Wallace and Joe McCarthy and Jim Rhodes and Richard Daly. 
Go back further to men like the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, or the officials who sent the police to the Haymarket Square and the troops to the Pullman Town, or John Brown, or George Grenville, the British politician who had a bright idea about the American colonies, an idea called the Stamp Act. American freedom has not flourished in spite of these morons of history. It has flourished because of them, because they overreacted, because they underthought, overreached, under-understood. We owe them our traditions of protest. We owe them our freedoms. We owe them our very independence. None of them ever understood that, around these parts anyway, suppression always creates the opposite of the effect desired. Such a man is Michael Rubens Bloomberg, mayor of New York City, and as of today, the most valuable, the most essential, the most irreplaceable man inside the Occupy movement. Who else but a cliché like Bloomberg could take a protest beginning to grow a little stale around its edges and vault it back into the headlines, complete with mortifying scenes of police dressed up as stormtroopers carrying military weapons using figurative bazookas to kill figurative mosquitoes? Who else but an archetype like Bloomberg could claim a group of protesters was making too much noise in a residential area and then choose to try to disperse them by bringing out LRAD audio cannons, machines that send painful waves of sound indiscriminately over the very same residential area? Who else but a cartoon like Bloomberg could have become rich, creating a multi-billion dollar media and news company, and then authorize illegally preventing reporters from witnessing police actions he claimed were utterly legal, and then authorize the arrest of four reporters at a church? Who else but a human platitude like Bloomberg could have just gotten back from Jerusalem and the dedication of a $10 million medical facility for which he generously paid? and then enabled the image of policemen seizing 5,500 books from the Occupy Wall Street library and throwing them in a dumpster as if the cops were book burners. Who else but a hypocrite like Bloomberg could have overridden by backroom deal with the New York City Council, the results of two separate referendums, limiting those in his office to just two terms as mayor so he could serve a third term, and then have had his police arrest, beat up, and incarcerate a member of the New York City Council. Who else but a putz like Bloomberg could have insisted that protesters were not above the rule of law, and yet when the courts ruled he could not seize the protesters' tents and sleeping bags, nor kick them out of Zuccotti Park, nor keep them from returning with their tents and sleeping bags, who else could have stalled for hours until he could find another judge to give him the ruling he insisted upon? Who else but the epitome of tone deafness that is Bloomberg could have better illustrated the fundamental issue of Occupy when he puts the entire weight of the most people-driven city in the history of the earth behind already crushingly rich and their efforts to grab themselves still more advantages from those people. And he himself is the twelfth richest man in America. Who else but a publicity addict like Bloomberg could have enabled the arrest of 700 protesters on the Brooklyn Bridge and yet two months later frozen 20 square miles of New York City in gridlock traffic over two days so somebody could film another goddamned Batman movie on the 59th Street Bridge leading to the inescapable conclusion that if you want to tie up a little traffic during a protest for equality and freedom from corporate domination on a bridge in New York City you will be arrested but if you want to tie up all the traffic during a goddamned movie shoot for the financial benefit of corporate domination the city of New York will embrace you and give you tax breaks Michael Bloomberg 
No such a figure, no such a living, breathing embodiment of all that is wrong and all that is stupid in the establishment in this country could be ordered up from the works of fiction or the casting calls of that goddamn Batman movie they filmed the weekend before he ordered the raid on Occupy Wall Street. Obviously, Mayor Bloomberg, you should resign, and your little bully of a police commissioner, Raymond Kelly, should go with you. You have overstepped all reasonable interpretations of your rights and responsibilities, and you have made Americans and people around the world realize that you are simply smaller, more embarrassing versions of the tin pot tyrants who have fallen around the globe in the past year. But as some of us first thought you might be back on that fateful September afternoon that sadistic cops pepper sprayed four women who had already been trapped inside a police overreaction, and as we thought again the following weekend during the arrests on Brooklyn Bridge, Michael Bloomberg, you have now indeed become the symbol of the Occupy movement. You are ready to take your historic place with Mayor Daley and Governor Wallace and Senator McCarthy and Prime Minister Grenville and every other idiot who has made the fateful and fatal mistake of thinking that just because he had power and money that this was a nation in which everything has a price tag on it. We need you, Michael Bloomberg. We need you to keep making these mistakes. Tone-deaf, sensibility-offending, world-changing mistakes like the pepper spray and the Brooklyn Bridge and the paramilitary assault on Occupy Wall Street last night. Hell, Mike, the freedoms of this wonderful and transcendent nation, corrupted by the endless greed of you and the other dozen richest people in it, and the corporations who nevertheless have still managed to own you somehow, these freedoms will not be restored to us in just the next two years. I'm endorsing you for a fourth term. Your nation needs you, Mr. Mayor. Occupy needs you. Bloomberg now. Bloomberg tomorrow. Bloomberg forever. The Occupy Wall Street protest has been hosed uh, out of its previous lodging. Mm -hmm. And um, last Saturday, John, I did a gig at the uh, Occupy London protest. And, you know, we pretty much brought capitalism to its knees with yeah. an hour of music, uh, comedy, and performance poetry. And. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's the performance poetry that yeah. always tips it. But I was steering that ship, John. I was I was comparing it, and you know you can't help but think. Just just four or five days later, the police waded in with batons in <laughs> uh, in New York. I thought, well, you yeah. know, this we we've seen what the bugle can do. We've seen what it's done to Mubarak. We've seen what it's done to Gaddafi, and we cannot take that risk. Yeah. So uh, you're welcome. Mm -hmm. Um. But uh, the reasons given for clearing the Occupy Wall Street protest uh, range from uh, hygiene and public safety, and uh, New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg thinking he might have dropped his lucky cuddly buffalo there and he really <laughs> wanted to find it because he couldn't sleep at night, yeah. and just something to pass the time of day. As the protesters were cleaned out, some onlookers apparently shouted at them, get a job, 
To which I suppose Ugh. the obvious retort would have been, that is kind of what this whole <laughs> thing is about. <laughs> In an ideal world, that will happen. Yeah. The protesters uh, have been uh, carried on their protests uh, around New York and uh, in favour of radical reform to Wall Street, for example, encouraging the banking sector to use basic arithmetic instead of a roulette wheel and a hammer in the testicles. Um, and people have been increasingly hacked off by the rising levels of inequality in America and around the, uh, the Western world. So mass unemployment has chomped its spiky gnashes into America's one remaining buttock. But at the same time, sales of luxury goods have continued to rise. Uh, USA! <laughs> USA! That's, that's what the Founding Fathers were dreaming of, I think, when they yeah. uh, set this whole shebang up. Yeah. But a compromise has now been reached, John, whereby whenever a millionaire buys a really expensive car, the car salesman is legally obliged to say to him, you know this represents an economic system that is totally unsustainable long-term. The millionaire then legally has to nod and say, yep, I do know that. <laughs> now give me the f***ing keys. <laughs> I think everyone would be fine with that. It's just it's more transparency, Andy. That's what this government wants, transparency without any kind of change. <laughs> activists released a statement, so the Wall Street, uh, the Occupy Wall Street activists, saying that while they may have been physically removed from Zagotti Park, they said, and I quote, you can't evict an idea whose time has come. Here's the thing, they are definitely going to try and evict <laughs> that idea as well, Andy. They're going to tear gas the shit out of that idea. Some executives have complained that the protests have distracted them. One trader who wished to remain anonymous said, It's hit me real bad. When I went to the titty bar for lunch with a dubious Russian oil magnate, I could hardly concentrate on the titties. But they've claimed to be representing the 99% of people, the protesters. And the problem is that I think they need to be more specific who exactly these 99% of people are. I mean, 99% of people have not ridden a hippo. Is this what this is all about? 99% mm -hmm. of people have not eaten a live mackerel whilst unicycling. Or experiment see whether if you fill your car's petrol tank with hamsters, it would still work. And if so, whether it would work squeakily or not. So I think, I mean, this is, this is the problem with this, this protest, you know, apart from not coming up with fully costed alternatives for the entire global economy. <laughs> so they haven't been, you know, on line-by-line -line breakdown of exactly where all the money's coming in from yeah. and going out to. Otherwise, what is the point of these protests? You know, if you, can't, if you cannot hold up a pla placard big enough to have a comprehensive solution to all the world's economic problems, you shouldn't hold a placard up at all, John. Well, it's, it's like with the anti-Iraq war protest, Andy. Unless you can come up with a workable solution for demilitarising some of the most dangerous areas of the world, then what are you doing out there? Yeah. I mean, not many of those anti-war placards had detailed historical backgrounds <laughs> on the political machinations that led to the creation of Iraq and the yeah. social and religious pressures that have, that have influenced it since, and that... To me, undermine the whole point of those protests. Get a job! <laughs> it's been a long, long time coming, but I know a change is gonna come. And it's too hard living, but I'm afraid to die, cause I don't know what's up there, just beyond the sky. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know. A change is gonna come And I miss my family My little girl She is my princess I'd give her the world It's been a long, long time coming But I know A change is gonna come 
Not only was Zuccotti Park shut down in the middle of the night uh, last night, but uh, members of the press uh, were attacked, arrested, and uh, kept out of the area. This is the <laughs> mayor of New York City uh, pretending that he cares about the First Amendment. He's got a very funny way of showing it. So here are among the members of the press that have been ar arrested. Writer Karen Matthews for the Associated Press, photographer Seth Wenig for the Associated Press, Daily News reporter Matthew Lysiak, uh, Patrick Hedlund, uh, who writes for DNAinfo.com. He's the news editor there. And Paul Lomax is a freelance photographer, also with DNAinfo.com. Julie Walker from NPR. And the list goes on. Those are just the ones that uh, that have reported in so far as being arrested, okay? Uh, furthermore, uh, all the reporters are saying that if you get anywhere within a couple of blocks, several blocks of the area, not within the park, if you're within blocks of the area and you're a reporter, they either tell you to move on or they arrest you. How do you like that? So in this country, our press cannot get within several blocks of a news story, a news story that involves no danger whatsoever other than to the reputation of Mayor Bloomberg. But that's being shut down. The cops come and shut you down if you're protesting, and if the press wants to cover it, well, since we already destroyed the First Amendment, yeah, who cares about freedom of the press, too? And we'll come and arrest you on top. And the news coppers, uh, choppers, coppers, funny, the news choppers for CBS and NBC apparently, according to press reports, have been told they cannot go over the area. What is this? Some say, hey, is it fair to call it a police state? I'm here to tell you, it's definitely fair to call it that. Some uh, journalists are saying, well, if it's not, it's the beginnings of a police state. Wait, it's not a beginning of a police state when the police say you're not allowed to speak out against the government and you're not, and the press is not allowed to cover you speaking out against the government. Mayor Bloomberg would have made a great president of Honduras back in the bad old days when they were a banana republic. These days, he'd be probably be laughed out of Honduras for what a tyrant he is. By the way, uh, Bloomberg's also the guy who said, yeah, I know you're not only supposed to run uh, twice for mayor of New York, but uh, rules are irrelevant to me. Democracy, who cares? I'm running again. This guy's a serial violator of the rules. So for him to trash the First Amendment is no problem. But here comes the great irony, because liar Bloomberg uh, has told a lie on every single part of this story. He says, so why did you do it? Why are you arresting these members of the press and blocking them from any coverage whatsoever? He says, quote, to protect members of the press. <laughs> now that's a great irony. I had to protect the press by shutting them down. It was for their own protection that they're not allowed to do their jobs anymore. Leah from Boulder. I just wanted to share with you something my friends and I have been doing. We've decided to just camp wherever. We've been doing it in front of banks so far since it's with the Occupy theme, but it's a really awesome way to get in touch with people who have no idea really what's going on or what's going on within the movement because the media is so skewed and the outside perception is so skewed. So, yeah, just sleeping anywhere, really, in a public place where people are walking by and just talking to people all night. Um, and we've actually had some really positive responses, even people who who had a negative view 
walking up to us kind of went away with with a different idea about what's going on. So just talking to people whenever you can is a great is a great way to get the word out. So uh, thanks for everything you do. Bye. Hello, Jay. Hello, Best of Left listeners. This is Max calling in from the People's Republic of Davis, California. And as you might have seen over the, over the uh, weekend, as I as I speak right now, there was some awful police brutality at the Occupy UC Davis protests. I personally saw the tear gassing, excuse me, the uh, pepper spraying happen, and I I felt the disgust in the crowd uh, when it happened. There, there were reports that uh, a female grad student got kicked in the head as well as an officer pepper spraying down somebody's throat. I mean, it was it was just a disaster for the public relations of the police in our community. And uh, for the campus to suppress the Occupy movement, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine a worse way to do it. But, you know, after seeing that myself, I wanted to put out a, uh, a question to um, our police officer friends who listen to this show. I just, I want to hear their thoughts because I, I spoke to a number of police officers that day, including their commanding officer, as the, the raid was happening and as students were being thrown to the ground. I, I've talked to a lot of, you know, really radical leftists about what they think about the police. And I've always seen police officers as two sides of a coin. And I'm, I'm looking for the other side because I find it confusing and upsetting. And frankly, it's, you know, it's pulling me away from the mainstream understanding of police officers being there to protect our interests. So um, thanks for all you do, Jay. And uh, police officers, please respond to me. My name is Max. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, Jay. It's Michael from Glenburn. Just finished listening to the uh, sixth uh, installment of the Occupy Wall Street uh, show that you did, yeah, and I'm a little behind. But uh, first off, great show. Thanks for that. And second off, I just wanted to echo what Mumia Jamal said on the clip. That, that that was just perfect, what he said. I, I couldn't have agreed more with everything he was saying about the media, just, just, the, way, just the way it became so obvious that, uh, that, that they just don't want to report on what's going on. And uh, you know, I just couldn't agree more with that. And that's one of the... the great things about this Occupy movement is that it's uh, it, it's really showing people's true colors and how they respond to it and how they cover it because there's such clear ways, you know, such clear explanations for so many things and people just choose not to uh, to look into it or report it and it's just, I don't know, it's mind-boggling to me. So, thanks for everything you do. Take care. Hey there, it's Max again, you know, the uh, People's Republic of Davis, California guy. I just wanted to put out an activist call to action. Today, the UC, Occupy UC Davis General Assembly has called for a general strike in uh, one week's time from this moment. Uh, so that'll be Monday, November 28th. If you're in the Davis area and you want to participate in the strike, check out uh, OccupyUCDavis.org uh, or our Facebook page or our Twitter account, Occupy UC Davis. And if, if not, we are going to need all the publicity and support uh, on the Internet that we can get. So please visit our website, our Facebook page, tweet about us, just uh, get the message out. Oakland's call for a general strike went pretty well. We want to escalate more 
with uh, with Davis's strike. Obviously, Davis is not as big, but if we can pull off a second strike, then there's really no telling how many strikes we'll be able to pull off. So I view this as very important. Uh, thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And so, yes, I would absolutely love to second that emotion that uh, some police officers should call in and give us some perspective on, uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street or crowd control or the combination of the two, anything like that. We would love to hear from you. Uh, you know, it, it's it's really a fascinating dynamic. You know, uh, police being pitted against Occupy protesters who are attempting to stand up for everyone in the 99%, uh, the the bottom 99% on the economic scale. It, it's it's really the physical, literal manifestation of of what has been talked about for a while. You know, they that the rich find ways to divide the poor into at least a couple of different groups to get them to fight each other, like, you know, unions versus non-unions uh, and that, that sort of thing. And you, you f- you're fighting uh, amongst the crumbs so fervently that you don't notice that the rich are getting away with millions. And so for, you know, like billionaire Bloomberg to decide that the cops need to evict the, uh, the protesters you know, it's it's really like it is that manifestation of uh, the, the the rich pitting two groups of middle class people against each other. It's it's a fascinating dy- dynamic, and it's and it's it's always sad to see it get out of control the way it has been. So I'm not even going to speculate on on what could possibly be going through police officers' minds during those situations, which is why we would love to hear from you. So uh, if you're a police officer and you want to comment on this, obviously you're, you're capable of remaining as anonymous as you want to be. And that number again is 206-202-3410. So that's it for today. I'm just going to thank a couple of members before I go. Nancy W. signed up for a leftist uh, yearly membership back on February 3rd, 2010, and has stuck with the show since then. Uh, So huge thanks to Nancy and Craig L. Uh, uh, signed up for a leftist monthly membership on March 26, 2010, and has stuck with the show month after month after month ever since then. So huge thanks to Nancy and Chris and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, except I'm taking uh, one show off for Thanksgiving. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right